Hey, 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 I'm the Chief. My buddy Mark is here with me, and we have got a special guest in the house. All right, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking. A G.I. Joe podcast, interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so, not as long as someone's publishing Joe. Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get this thing started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now. They've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing, we're going in deep. Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. Right, I'm going to give a quick introduction because when you pick up these funny books off the stand and you see these headliners, these writers, these artists, okay, they may be drawing the, the pictures, the lovely pictures and writing the dialogue for all these favourite characters. There's a couple of key people behind the scenes that I think go unnoticed sometimes and that is the letterer and in our case the colorist and we have got one of the best in the biz the man who has colored more issues of gi joe in human history than anyone else and i think i could be wrong here but i think he has been credited on more issues of gi joe than anyone with the exception of mr hammer and that is the wonderful mr j brown james brown how are you sir i'm doing great thanks for having me guys Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to, uh, to get someone of your ilk onto the show. So um, it's late at night for us. It's in the afternoon for you. I'll quickly go over to my co-host, Mark. How are you, sir? Good. Yeah. Good to be talking. Yeah, and talking uh, to God. such a distinguished uh, guest <laughs> with such a long <laughs> legacy on the, uh, on the Joe books. Yeah, we're going to get into the Joe stuff, obviously, but um, let's just start at the beginning. When you were Mr. Little J. Brown, did you were comics a part of your youth and your childhood growing up? Oh, absolutely. I, I, was, uh, I was raised to read on comics. My father was a, a comic, book, uh, comic book lover, and uh, you know, back in, this was in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and I can remember copies of uh, Conan number one laying around, and, and I think one of the first comics... I ever got was my dad would go into this um, uh, convenience store or, or, or corner store. And back in those days, comics would be on the newsstand. And um, when they didn't sell all of them, they'd rip the covers off and then they'd sell them at a discount. And I remember getting copies of X-Men and Spider-Man with the covers off uh, dropped off on my, uh, on my bedside from, from my, uh, my dad. Yeah. We hear lots of stories of, of comic pros who, you know, learn to read via the comic medium. That, that seems to be a common thread running through a lot of creators, actually. I, I think I was one of the only grade schoolers who understand what a mutant was and how to spell it. Yeah, good, good, good. And then uh, at what point did you kind of think, well, you know, this, this funny book business, there's, um, you know, there's a living to be made here. You know, maybe a, a boy can make some money here. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how many people <laughs> actually go into it thinking, that uh, there's a, a big money to be made, but no, um, no I was um, years years later, and, and in my in my professional um, uh, world, I was in the graphic design business. I worked in book publishing, but always had a love for comics. Um, so I looked around at my skills and, and realized that I, I couldn't draw worth worth a damn, and uh, inking was <laughs> a bit beyond me. But I saw a, an opening, in perhaps with, with doing coloring. So I was able to get my hands on black and white comics. And this was in the days, um, I, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, where Dark Horse Presents was a big comic book. And they published oh, yeah. in black and white. And this was Frank Miller's first Sin City work. And I remember grabbing, grabbing those books and Xeroxing them onto watercolor paper. Um, and... Uh, in in the early days of coloring, coloring was done with markers and paints and dyes on watercolor paper itself on paper, um, and then it was handed off to the printer to lay in the colors. So I remember getting my hands on this black and white artwork and working up samples uh, on Frank Miller's Sin City and uh, other Dark Horse presents. Uh, I think it was Aliens versus Predator and doing samples and uh, put together a portfolio. I'm in the Boston area in USA. And back in those days, they would have uh, 
comic book conventions at Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden in New York City. And those were the big shows. And I would get on the train and get to, get, uh, to the show as early as I can. And I just started showing my portfolio to different editors uh, for different comic book companies and uh, got my first work with, um, I believe it was Dark Horse and Harris Comics, Vampirella publisher. Just did some, did some legwork and, and put together a portfolio and start showing it to the editors who can actually give me work, potentially. Wow, yeah, just getting, get, yeah, doing the work, getting it in their hands and, and being given a chance, I guess. Different, different now, isn't it? I mean, I, I think a lot of people get spotted from social media, don't they, where they're posting up images on Instagram and Twitter, and then the, the companies are actually out there looking for this talent, whereas back in the day, you could, you could pitch your work at conventions, like you say. So, oh, yeah, it's a different world now, and, and it's much, um, you know, you don't have the expense. I mean, I would have to go and, and make up copies. Not only did I go to conventions in person, I would mail out sample packages. I would print these copies up and put together a package and, and put them in the mail and send them to editors and get my, uh, my nice uh, form rejection letters. Um, <laughs> but these days, no, you could, these days with social media and, and uh, the web, you could post your own comic, just, just post a whole comic book to show uh, potential editors and comic book companies what you can do and the, the and you could do more than just a, a single page here and there you could actually produce a whole book it's it's an amazing opportunity for for talent to be seen excellent yeah. do you remember what your first published book was <laughs> i believe it was a reprint um it was a recoloring of a book called herbie which was yeah, a um the, the, the fat for the fat fury um and they were recoloring these herbie books and uh, that was one of the first assignments I got was recoloring uh, Herbie from the, uh, the originals. And um, I, then I think I did a, a Starship Troopers uh, movie adaptation for Dark Horse as well. So those were a couple of the first uh, uh, works I did, as well as Harris Comics. They were the Vampirella publisher. Um, they were also the first publisher of Cyberfrog. Um, <laughs> as well as uh, some other lesser-known properties, but I did some work for Harris Comics as well back in the early days. Yeah, I was just looking. I was looking through uh, some of the books you've worked on, and I saw the cover to the. I don't know how this is pronounced, but the Ewer Demon uh, by Dark Horse. Oh, that's I, right. I remember that one. I think I might have <laughs> bought it, uh, but yeah, I definitely remember seeing yeah. it. Uh, being advertised in previews, if nothing that else. That does go back a ways, yeah. <laughs> and also Milestone as well, is that correct? Oh boy, that was, that was when things really took off. That was 92, 93. Um, I was very fortunate and um, knew a few people. Um, i not even sure if I remember the exact connections, but I, I was fortunate to be part of a groundbreaking company, Milestone Media, um, run by... Um, Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cowan and worked on some of their high profile books. Icon, uh, I did a little bit of static. I did Blood Syndicate, um, Hardware. Um, I participated in all of them. And those were comic books that were hand painted um, from uh, the, the line work of, of the artists. And uh, then those hand painted color guides, color boards were then actually reprinted. Uh, they took pictures of the, the color boards and then made color files out of those and as well as um jim shooter's um big uh big second company uh, after valiant was defiant and i yeah. worked on their flagship title called warriors of plasm yeah i, I remember, remember that things. as well yeah, yeah, yeah i yeah, love that book david lapham in his early days the detail was incredible groundbreaking idea um they still have replicated that that idea of a world but uh yeah those were those are the the beginning days yeah, exciting Excellent. stuff. I, Very vibrant. Those, I guess, those Warriors of Plasm books were so vibrant is my, my recollection of them. Definitely. And I guess when you were still still painting on a on a you know on a, a watercolor board, that that must have been quite a nice kind of almost like artifact collector's item in its in its own right that that uh, must have yeah just in person looked look like a yeah a lovely piece of art with the with the watercolors just as it was a, different. You know, it was display. different than. An, yeah, I mean, it, it was, first of all, it was just a pleasure to be able to work on such great artwork. Um, but yeah, you were literally working with brush strokes and um, laying it down, 
with, uh, you know, every brushstroke had to mean something. And I mean, sometimes it was, um, it was harder to do that way because the artwork was so detailed and with computers now, there's a little bit more uh, ability to isolate what you want to work on. But um, yeah, I still have some of those original color boards. No. How, how was just, I'm going to jump forward a little bit. How was, you mentioned it there, but how was the shift going from physical coloring to digital coloring for you personally? Was that an easy transition to make or something that you had to work on? I had to work on it. I mean, there was no formal training. I didn't have any formal um, art school training and uh, computer design, computer painting, I think was in its infancy uh, back in the early 90s. It was starting to be accepted more in comics. But no, I'm entirely self-taught. <clears throat> and there was no real choice. The industry went there. The industry embraced the technology. It became cheaper and faster to produce books using computer coloring. Image Comics pioneered a lot of the, the great computer coloring that you saw back then. Um, but I, I had to teach myself how to use the computer. And I mean, back then, I mean, I had to paint on a page using a mouse looking at a screen. So imagine trying to paint with a brick. Basically. Um, it, it took some doing. And then technology developed where you could mm. have a tablet, a drawing tablet on screen. And now you can replicate the feel of a brush in your hand and um, nothing, nothing beats that. But uh, yeah, there was there was a lots of uh, there was a, a steep learning curve. Let's let's put it that way. Would, and, would you uh, go? Would you go back at all or not? Is <laughs> is is this definitely a a? Obviously, it's a cost saving in doing it digitally. But was there is there anything you can do physically that you can't do digitally or not really? Um, I, I don't think so. With with the the types of brushes and palettes and tools that are available in a program like Photoshop, which I, I believe is the industry standard for computer coloring and comics, you can get brushes that look absolutely natural and look grungy and rough. Yeah. And yeah. you could do that if you, if you put in the effort to either create the brushes or find the brushes, but there is something very satisfied of seeing how uh, a dye soaks into paper and seeing, seeing how it, uh, it just reacts and how mixing colors differently will create something maybe even unexpected. I mean, with a computer coloring, the undo key can just change everything in a moment's notice. If you don't like how two colors mix together, go back a couple of steps and undo. Um, But with a a hand painted board, if you don't want to start the whole page over again, you learn to to live with the happy (laughs) accident back then. But you've got to find, you've got to find in yourself to create something new. Yeah. Yeah, but there is also a, a downside to that because artists who work digitally, they don't have a physical item that is a collectible or that is one of a kind that can be resold. I have my color boards from from those books, from those milestone books, from those um, uh, defiant books. Those have a intrinsic value because they are literally one of a kind and they can be sold mm. for whoever might find them valuable. Same with, I mean, the, the incredible market in, in artists' pencils, and original pencils and ink sports. They're, they're incredibly valuable, depending on the book, can be incredibly valuable collector's items because they are literally one of a kind. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Um, how, so how did you, let, let's kind of segue into your work on Joe here. How did you get that gig on the Joe books? Um, at the time, the editor uh, on the G.I. Joe titles uh, was a man named Andy Schmidt. And I had done some work for him back in my Marvel days. Um, and he, he moved from Marvel to, uh, uh, to IDW Publishing. And um, before, IDW, before IDW had the, the Joe license, they were doing Transformers books and they were doing Star Trek books. Um, and I worked on, he called me in and said, need help, need somebody I can rely on to get these books done. And I started by playing in the Star Trek sandbox a little bit and then um, doing some Transformers book. I, Transformers was my regular book for uh, a period of time. I'm not sure how many issues I actually worked on. But, um, and then G.I. Joe came along. I think, I think I did a little bit of work on the, um, the rise of Cobra some of the movie adapt- adaptations books, or they started to, to do one-shot books for G.I. Joe. 
and I worked on those. I think there was one called <clears throat> Operation Hiss that you worked on, which was in right. that Yeah, universe. the movie Italian, mm-hmm. which was great, great art. I mean, they did a great job of, of you know, connecting to the movie. But then um, Larry uh, Hama came back for A Real American Hero. They decided to launch the, the, the restart of that 1980s storyline, uh, which had ended with issue number 155, they did an issue uh, 155.5, and they were releasing it as a, a new comic day book. Um, the artist was uh, Augustin Padilla, I believe. That's right. And um, they, Andy had me come in to, to take over that series. And I've been, one way or another, I've been coloring issues of that book uh, since, that, since that issue. I, I, I have to ask a question. Yeah, that is news to me. What you said something that I had colored or worked on more issues of Joe than anybody else. I might have you checked that out. I that <laughs> true. That's is what that Mark told me. That make me sound great, or is that's it, what Mark told me before that, the show. So I'm relying on him. Really? He's a research man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I've never checked that out. Yeah, I'll need. To, I'll need to. I'll need to, need to reach out to to our. our, our fan base to make to make sure that i'm not getting it wrong there but i think let's put an asterisk on that i wouldn't be surprised though i wouldn't be surprised honestly because i think i think other than that it's probably shannon um gallant and and you said you'll have done more issues than 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 him because you've been on virtually every single one of the the relaunch issues so right i i um, was i was there on the series before he started and and i was there after he started he did a boatload of issues Amazing you, talent, what a great artist! Yes, you had in your runs on Origins, Special Missions, the other D- IDW oh, right. GI Joes as well. That you know, it's that is adding up to some, you know, quite a considerable yeah. count. So, see, now you're, you're naming those titles. I have to check to see whether I have forgotten or whether I've blocked them out. I'm not sure <laughs> well, I so, guess, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see, see what the other counts would be actually. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be willing to, to, to put lay down a bet. That yeah. it's got to be you, and I guess that, the, that would that would be something. I mean, it's it's been eleven years. I haven't colored every every issue in eleven years, but I know that I look back and I saw the the first cover I did for for issue one fifty five point five, and the the file date on that was December two thousand nine. So I, I do go. know that that goes back mm-hmm. eleven years. There you go. And, and I guess the, the natural they... question after that is: Were you a Joe fan? prior to getting the gig on the books and if not how much research did you have to do prior to starting the job well the answer to that is i was a joe fan but it's which joe are we talking about because <laughs> my original gi joes were the 12 inch gi joes with the fuzzy hair and beard yep. and sometimes mm-hmm. with the kung fu grip yeah. <laughs> the eagle eyes so yeah this this was the original you know the original toy with i, I had Oh, my, my, my parents always gave me great Christmases. I had the, the vehicles, I had the ATV, I had the spaceship, I had the, the you know, the Indiana Jones style, you know, um, <laughs> raiding the tomb figures. So those were my original G.I. Joes, which I, you know, treasure. I played with Captain Action figures as well and mixed them up. But I was, I was a bit older. I was in my, I think I was in my 20s when the, um, the new line of GI Joes uh, came out. The, what is it? The, the three and a half inch figures? Or, yeah, three and three quarter. Um, yeah, three, three, yeah. Three, three, three. <laughs> so that was a bit. That was a bit past my, you know, youthful days. But I appreciated them. But th- th- the other part of the question is: there's always research required when you're working on the 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 num- sheer number of I I individualized characters that you have to look up to see what the original toy version looked like, what the 25th anniversary version might have looked like. So I'm always looking at internet reference to make sure um, I'm I'm getting the the costume or the uniform right or whatever Joe I'm I'm coloring. So so do you get any, does Larry reach out to you at all? Because he's kind of famous for, um, you know, being a stickler for particular guns looking the way they do or reaching out to artists for redraws of certain scenes or certain sections would he give you any indication for colors or is would he just leave you to do your thing no he, he's not reached out to me i mean he he makes a point from what i've seen uh, of making sure the artist is properly prepared with with all of the reference that they mean might need and yes he's definitely um a stickler and helps the artist to know 
what type of, whether it's an M60 machine gun or what a fragmentation grenade looks like or, or what a you know armored personnel carrier looks like. He will send that to the artist, but he's never uh, made an issue or made a point of, of saying, you know, it should be colored like this. Um, but he, I, I'm sure that his main concern is that it's drawn appropriately. And, and then I'll look at the reference and do everything I can to make sure that the colors are, are right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no. I think he's got enough pull that if he didn't like your work, he probably would have been in contact <laughs> with the editors anyway. So I, I, would, I think that's I an indication so. that he likes what you're doing. Yeah, I've got the gig, and maybe in the last seven years, eleven years, he might have said something if he had anything cross to say about <laughs> it. So I'll, I'll take it as a vote of confidence. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, no news is good news. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, Larry sort of famously is is one of the uh, remaining writers who sort of writes uh, Marvel method and and sort of with a a slightly reduced script, which um, I'm guessing the the script must you know it drops on your desk at, um, along with the the finished arts, so you can you can see it. Is is there mm-hmm. how much is there to go? Uh, go go on on the on the script for for you to in kind of inform your your decisions of you you know the thing important things like is it set at night or day <laughs> those kind how of how much things. blood yeah right how much blood <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing that detailed um i think when it's crucial um larry will indicate whether it's a day scene or a night scene um he is definitely uh, gives the artist room to tell the story. He will be, if there's, um, you know, an, an aspect or an element of the, the page or, or a piece of equipment that is prominent later in the story, he'll make sure the artist knows, draw this in, make sure that the reader can see it because we're going to see it again later in the book. And that's how he thinks about storytelling and, and the, his mastery of it. And he knows he knows how to think, you know, half a book down the chessboard so to speak to know that uh, this this the machine gun can't appear out of nowhere it it Mm -hmm. appeared somewhere on page two but um there's plenty in the script for me to know what's happening in the story but um it's more or less for me to to understand okay if we're working with especially if we're working with settings that have appeared in other books even going going back to the 80s making sure the pit looks a certain way and i've tried to keep that consistent with um the way i've, I've done the color designs on the pit since the shannon gallant days so i will try to make some of the settings that we see fort wadsworth uh, dr mindbender's lab i'll try to make them look consistent over over the issues yeah. um but um there's no specific given as this room should look warm and this room should look cold yeah um, speaking speaking of dr mindbender uh <laughs> we've got a breaking communique coming in now because it's time for it's a gi joe pop quiz pop quiz it's a gi joe pop quiz pop quiz question one you take your kid down to the local shopping mall for some christmas shopping because the big day is coming here soon you see santa claus but he looks a bit funny he's got a bald head a monocle a tash, uh, open chest, and a codpiece. Hmm, this looks like Dr. Mindbender posing as Santa Claus. What do you think the kind of gift he's going to give out to the children? Is that for me? That is for you, yeah. I sprung that on you with no prior warning, and you're like, what is going on here? What have I stumbled into? That is a question for you, Mr. Brown. Dr. Mindbender would give you a free, free experience in this fantastic, incredibly comfortable uh, uh, mind scanner uh, throne to sit on and if you sat there you would have a special special conduit to speak directly to the elves and he would he would lure you to sit in that chair and then before you got entirely comfortable he would lower the hammer on you uh, bind you with manacles and and suck your brains dry that's what a doctor <laughs> mindbender would do don't take your kid down to that santa yeah. claus for sure no don't, don't yeah. hold on larry you've got some comp- competition here <laughs> let's yeah, see that story <laughs> yeah i want to see that story for real yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right back to the regular schedule i don't know where we were now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah in this scripting is it <laughs> is it is it right that, that a lot of uh there's had to be like two passes so that when you see the script it's slightly you know high level description and and then like the dialogue and things get filled in after the event after you've done the the yeah. art so so you're almost you're getting to see 
half of the story once you've uh, actually completed the uh, your work on the book. Yeah, I mean the the dialogue was is what appears once once you see the yeah the the proof that that sends a, the proof goes out to all members of the team to review and and check over before it goes to the printer. So I'll read Larry's dialogue and read specifics of what people are saying to each other probably for the first time, sometimes there's dialogue or you know what people are saying to each other in Larry's script. But um, I will read the, the final dialogue just before, you know, the, the book goes to the, to the printer. And has there been instances where you're like, oh, okay, that's what's happening with the story. I didn't realize that. Um, you know, when you're, when you're working on a 20-page book over weeks, sometimes you're working with pages out of order, yeah, you do sit there and, and read and say, oh, this is what's happening after all. You have a sense of what's going to be happening in the book, but how it all reads is, is where Mr. Hama really pulls it together and, and makes it enjoyable for, for the reader as well. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll enjoy getting my, my, my comp copies from IDW and sitting there and, and actually sitting down like a, like a fan, like a reader, and reading the, the book you know, with, with having it in my hands. Interesting. And do you ever sort of editorialize in your own head and think, hmm, wonder what, you know, wonder how this idea might progress or, or you know, have your own ideas about what you think uh, should be happening, happening next in the story? That, that is above my pay grade. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just glad to be a part of, of uh, a part of the team. And uh, the book is in very capable hands in terms of direction. Um, I'm just happy sometimes if I catch something wrong. Uh -huh. um, in terms of something's miscolored or a piece of artwork isn't there. A, a big, a big, <laughs> I'll let you down an inside secret. secret. Um, one of the sticklers for uh, authenticity or one of, the, one of the things that will trip up an artist often is when you're throwing a grenade, having the spoon fly off of the grenade, that's been a biggie for multiple artists over time. Um, anybody who <laughs> who's seen a military movie knows you pull the pin, you throw the grenade, the, the handle flies off the grenade, and then it goes in flight. But we've, we've seen many a grenade with the, uh, with the handle still attached that a couple of times I've had to catch that. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I've got a really random question. I'm just going to slip in here. Um, have you developed any lockdown hobbies over the last uh, kind of six to six to eight months? Anything that you weren't doing before that now you've developed? Um, no, I, I can't say. I, I, perhaps I, I, I make a... I make a greater effort to get out and move and exercise and um, get out of get out of the house. But I, I'm one of the people that has been less affected by the change in life, the being locked down or sent home. I'm fortunate that I get to work from my home studio and have my work sent to me uh, by email or being able to access it by server and to be able to send my work in remotely. So. Um, it's, it's fortunate that I, I've been able to, to work. I, IDW did have a, a three month or so pause, um, in, in the, uh, in the spring, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, all companies had to, you know, end up going that way. But, uh, no, I, I, I've been fortunate that I haven't had to come up with ways to keep myself busy because I've, I've always had Joe, let's put it that way. <laughs> So, well, continuing on that vein, will, will you continue to do Joe until they say no more, do you think? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to stay as long as they have me. Good, and, good. Uh, I, never, I never take it for granted how long the... I, I call it my 11-year freelance job because there's, you know, there's no contract. <laughs> and it's, um, I, I work at the pleasure of, of IDW editorial, and um, I uh, love it, and it's... In, in this business and just, just in this working world, having a steady gig um, is something to be treasured, and, and I do. And, and plus, it's, it's a book that matters, that means something, that's got a history, mm -hmm. that's got a fan base, um, and uh, has got you know, an incredible legacy. Yeah, And, and did so. you have any idea when you were first offered that uh, 155 and a half issue that the gig would last any longer than just that first issue? Not a clue. Not a clue. I mean, I, I still, I, with every new story arc that starts, I'm never quite sure whether I'm going to be involved in it or not. Um, just because sometimes when you've got different creative teams, mm -hmm. sometimes there are, there's another colorist that will be part of that team. You never know for sure. Um, and I can 
I can only think that just my track record and that uh, I, an editor never has to doubt whether I'm going to show up on time and deliver the book on time. I, I think that that helps quite a, quite a bit. It's interesting in our, our read along that we, we noted that, uh, that, that you, you weren't on the, um, I think it's called Dawn of the Arashikage arc, the Nitho Diaz's initial five-parter. Yeah, 246 uh, to 250. And then, but then you joined it, joined back again immediately after, after that. Was that a case where, when Nitho had a, had a, a colorist that he was experienced with, with using? I, I don't and he know. To... Yeah, I don't know that for sure. Um, I know also at that same time, I, I was moved to the, um, the GI Joe $6 million man. Oh crossover. yes, of course. Yeah. So because I had experience with Shannon Gallant, um, I think they just knowing that there were going to be two GI Joe related projects, I think they kept me with Shannon and took the opportunity while working with Nito, who made a fantastic debut um, with that arc and has made his mark on the G.I. Mm-hmm. Joe series, especially Definitely. with Dawn. Um, but I think, I, I'm not sure whether Nito, Nito um, requested that colorist or, I mean, IDW, Tom Waltz, my editor at uh, G.I. Joe, whether you always want to make sure you've got enough enough talent on hand to, you know, step in when you need them. And whether maybe there was a colorist that he wanted to try out um, at the time. But um, no, I, I didn't participate in that, but joined back in after that story arc was over. And, um, and is, is that is, is part of that in terms of just how much, how much you can physically um, achieve in, in a single month? Well, I mean, there, there, is, there is that. I mean, you've got <laughs> 20, 20 pages of, of art. Um, and you've seen what Shannon Gallant's artwork looks like. He does not skimp on the detail, and mm. you can't skimp on the coloring because you don't want to give it short shrift. So it takes a good amount of time to, to work on a, a Shannon page. But there was a time when I think G.I. Joe, for a while there, they did two issues per month, and I got through those. And so, you know, wow. sometimes when, you're, when you have a deadline, when you have a schedule, you just find a way to say yes and get it done. And that means you give up a little bit of your life in the evenings or the weekends or whatever. But yeah, I mean, there, there are limitations to how many pages you could do, but that, that's the game colorist play. How much can I get done before I fall over face down on the yeah. computer? <laughs> <laughs> and then if, you know, th- this 11 year gig on Joe is obviously close to your heart, but do you follow other artists or characters? Is there another another dream job that you would like to a character you'd really like to have a go at or an artist you really like to color over my favorite hero of all time is is batman like like so many it's just an amazing character that can that can be you could go in so many directions with so that character i've never worked on in terms of a of a published um a published work I, i had the opportunity to color superman when i worked for milestone but i never got my hands on batman that would be fun to just do a pinup or a cover or some type of uh, work for uh, for DC on that Batman character. The artist, boy, oh boy! I mean, there's just there's just so many talented artists artists out there. It's just it's hard to it's hard to pick one. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm drawing a blank in terms of the artist I would want to work on. But the character is. Um, is a no-brainer batman is yeah okay dc i know you're listening to this podcast so uh make the call <laughs> well, they got plenty of good people to choose from so um, but yeah batman is uh batman's a favorite okay are you a, fo- are you a football <laughs> you fan obviously jim brown being one of the greatest i, I am a football fan uh okay the, the real football not your football no no, no. so you're, <laughs> you're, a, you're a pa- i guess you're a patriot fan, <laughs> I, I am a New England Patriots fan. It's, okay. it's tough times these days. But uh, I, I always said, well, now I have two teams to work, root for. I can root for Tom Brady and root for the, the Pats. And the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, yeah. yeah. And they are the, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tampa That's Bay Buccaneers, yeah. That's right. Well, I'm a, I'm, a Dolphin, <laughs> I'm a Dolphins fan. So, uh, are you really? Yeah, we're doing, we're doing okay this season. So They've kicked our butts a few times unexpectedly. Yeah, well, Cam Newton, I don't think that was a that was a you know Bill Belichick's always going to get the best out of any quarterback, but even Cam Newton, I don't, I think he's struggling to get something good out. He, he can't throw it anymore. I know, but my my the phrase I end up saying all the time is Cam can't. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard to watch. But listen, I was spoiled. I was spoiled by a dynasty for for many years, and I also 
I didn't grow up a, a football fan. I, I came to it later in life. We moved into a neighborhood with uh, lots of sports fans. My dad was not a sports fan. A little bit of basketball, a little bit of Boston Celtics, but not a football or baseball fan. So I didn't really grow up being a, a sports fan, but uh, I came to appreciate football uh, later in life, and now it's, now it's a fun diversion. Well, especially in Boston, when you have got, like you say, the Celtics, the Bruins, um, you know, the Red Sox, the Patriots, right. you, you know, you, I've been to, I've been to uh, Gillette Stadium to watch a Patriots game, actually, um, huh? uh, ten, maybe 10 years ago. So, uh, you know, I've got a bit Amazing of soft spot um, for, for Boston as a, what a lovely, I've been there as well, but, you know, hang, hung around for a week in Boston. What a lovely place. Actually, that, that does bring me on to a, another question. When Boston has that thick Boston accent um, is very, yeah. very unique. Um, and one of the questions I had is when I hear like the kind of the Dick Van Dyke um, London Cockney accent in movies, it makes me cringe. <laughs> Do you ever hear Boston accents in TV shows and movies that make you think, no, that's not right? Oh, I, I do. And the worst is when people try to do it badly. You, you'd rather they didn't do it at all. <laughs> okay. I mean, there are, there are examples where it's done really well, like movies, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Mm-hmm. You know? they, got it, <laughs> yeah. they got it right there. They, they, they knew how to say Departed. Um, you know, <laughs> but um, actually, Seth Meyers did a fantastic, funny, um, funny clip on his show called uh, a parody of a movie trailer called Boston Accent. Okay. If you look it up, it is a riot. Just how they how they make fun of people's efforts to try to sound legitimate, and it's usually it's usually you you drop your R's and you use a lot of profanity, and that's the way people <laughs> try to try to emulate a Boston accent. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure when you hear a bad Cockney, you it, it grates on you, and when I hear a, a bad uh, pack the car. <laughs> uh, you, you, you know you're in for a rough time i suppose every every region has got its own um you know dialect and um, probably everyone has that where they've spotted someone or they've heard someone trying to imitate them that that's not um uh, quite on the money so yeah there you go there you go good stuff good stuff um <laughs> I had a question, actually. Um, before this lockdown, this COVID-19 lockdown, were you a, um, a tender of attendee of comic conventions? Was that something that was in your sphere or was that something you didn't really do? I, I've, I've, done a lot of, I've done a lot of shows in my life. Um, I, I've, I've tended to pull back on going to shows in recent years just because um, I didn't find I was getting as much out of them in terms of getting work. I wasn't finding the work there. Um, it was more difficult to sort of like get with an editor and show an editor your work. And, and I mean, it, it coincided with the web and being able to email PDFs and portfolios. So between just, uh, I, I'm not too big on crowds anymore. And, and I think the last Javits Center I went to was just such a crush of humanity. Um, and the, the time and expense of, of getting back and forth to a show just it just became more than i the cost benefit just didn't work out um so if you, i i would go to a show primarily to try to make contact with editors and, mm-hmm. and drum up work it was nice to see some of the the comic book professionals i knew to to see them there but um it just it just didn't work in, as well in terms of having it be worth the time and and, and the expense yeah i mean you know in the the UK has kind of had a resurgence over the last 10 years of conventions. Um, and like you say that the majority are obviously writers and artists and you, you know, you see the odd colorist uh, here and there, but like you say, it, it seems to be geared towards um, either artists who are, you know, doing commissions or selling artwork or, you know, writers who are prolifically signing books and things like that. So um it's 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 it must be difficult for the letterers and the artists and the, and the colorists because there's so much emphasis put on the writers and the artist inkers that it feels like you guys who are integral to the books look and the the atmosphere and the way it is interpreted but i don't want to say you get a a short shrift or you know something like that but it does feel a, a bit under uh, underlooked maybe Little undersung. I, undersung. No, I, I I say that that's always been the case, but I'd also say, even less so these days. I think colorists um, 
are more appreciated now and letters are much more appreciated. I, I would work with a lot of independent publishers and one of the things that I would say is do not cheap out on your lettering. A, a good, a, a bad lettering job will make a book look so unprofessional. Even in, even in subtle, indistinguishable ways. Yeah. Um, so much, you know, bad coloring, but I think letters are given more their due these days um, a, a, as well as colorists. And I think um, with crowdfunding, uh, books. I think since a lot of these books mm. are a bit more crafted, there are fewer of them. They take longer to produce. I think people appreciate the the, the quality of the coloring. Yeah. When you look at a, an image online and you're deciding whether to to pony up your money for a you know a Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign, you're you are analyzing and and assessing all levels of quality, um, from the drawing to the coloring to the inking and the lettering. So yeah, I think I think people have more discerning taste now. Yeah, well, it even yeah. stems even stems up to the big boys as well because I remember reading recently that book from DC. Um, what's that one? Uh, the, the Batman Who Laughs uh, from Scott Snyder yeah. wrote it. I forget who drew it. I don't think it was Jock. Was it? Jock. But anyway, the the point was that the letterist had decided to use red font for the lead character, and it was almost unreadable because it yeah. had just washed itself yeah. out and blended into the thought bubble to, to the speech bubble. And it, it was such a terrible choice. And, you know, the, the, whoever it was, I, you know, that was a good job on the actual font and the lettering, but the choice of color on the, the font was just um, not the greatest. And, um, yeah. you know, so that goes to show that through every level of production of that, that page of comic art, yeah. um, you know, everyone has mm. a distinct role. And if anyone gets their role slightly wrong, it affects the overall product. Sure. That's why everybody needs an editor. That's why, a, you know, a good editor really is, is the, the backstop to any production. They have to look at that and they have to catch things like that and say, yeah. you know, and, and come back to an artist and say, I see what you're trying to do here, but we have to, we have a technical issue about, you know, red or whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's commercial art. Ultimately, it's got to work on the page. It's got to, be uh something that uh you know can be printed well and someone's gonna want to buy it kind of can be tricky as well because what you see on the screen isn't necessarily what you see in the physical form once it's been printed out right definitely in, in terms of color and in, in that's one of the biggest things that a, a colorist has to keep in mind because they're they're working in the <clears throat> in the computer screen in the computer realm you're dealing with rgb you know the 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 colors that go into a, a picture image. Well, in comics, in printed comics, you're printing in four colors, blue, magenta, yellow, and black, CMYK. Um, the C stands, you know, cyan. Um, K stands for black. Uh, and those colors are mixed together to create the colors that are printed on the page. And you have to be able to understand or try to anticipate how the coloring that you're seeing on your screen will translate to a printed page of ink on paper uh, absorbing into paper and uh, I, I see plenty of people out there who do fantastic beautiful things uh, that look great on a computer screen and you know that um, boy when that gets printed it's going to look it could look like a muddy mess um, but with everybody reading so many people reading books online there's also a freedom there because you could have these mm -hmm. gorgeous purple and Purple and green can be very difficult to, to translate from uh, the computer screen to paper. But mm -hmm. boy, oh boy, on the computer screen itself, if you're just reading a PDF of a book, oh, the, the, the fun you could have. I wondered, we were talking about, um, you know, how much you could fit in a, in a month and the fact that you were, you're working on some of the double shipping months of, of G.I. Joe. And I know that often... Uh, the, the people at the end of the the pipeline of of making the book are the the colorist and and the the letter and, and sometimes uh they as a result working with the toughest deadlines um you know how's that experience been been for you and um have you got any stories about uh working under um a little bit more pressure than normal about how how uh, fast you have to turn around uh the book before it's uh finalized every every artist on a book um has has got their their version of the, their nightmare story of a nightmare deadline. Um, some companies are better than others in, in terms of really managing the deadlines and making sure people deliver on a schedule. Um, what I'll say is, you know, I, sometimes it, it just 
goes that way and you have to you have to pull late nights or weekends or all-nighters or whatever um haven't had to go quite that to quite that length uh, with with gi joe and i will say of, of all the companies i've worked for in terms of monthly production of books idw has such respect for the artist and giving the artist time to work they never you, you never throw in a book you know at the last minute and expect to just get it done there's always if you if they my, my editor tom waltz at for G.I. Joe, you know, even when you do have those unfortunate situations, it's always apologetic. It's never assuming that, you know, you'll do it because you want the job, right? So um, every every artist will have their sort of situation where, oh my God, I, I have to get this done fast. But, you know, when you, when you, when you have the, the advantage of being able to do it full-time rather than a, a part-time job, it's, it's, it's my day gig. And I, I color my books from you know day to evening and you get an idea of how many pages you have to get done and you just work backwards you say these are the pages i have to get done make my goals for the day make my goals for the week and um the 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 deadline waits for for no one and that editor needs to get the book out to the printer and especially with something like gi joe you, you need to the, the book needs to be uh, sent to uh hasbro for review to make sure mm. that you know meets their standards too. So it's not as simple as get it done and sent to the printer. Mm. Um, Hasbro needs to, to review it as well. Yeah, there's a couple of masters in play there. Uh, <laughs> got to please them all. Um, quick random question: um, What are your top three favorite movies? Oh, The Godfather, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and um, oh, mm. Heat. Heat, Heat okay. Al Pacino, I met yep. Michael Mann film, and I, I just thought of movies that will stop me dead. Remember, from looking around, Goodfellas. That's another one. I, mm. I'm I'm half Italian, so I I have a, <laughs> a you got a vested bit of interest a, there. Yeah, vested interest in the, in the mob movie, but I think you know I think those are you know, some of the, the top Good. ones that people will still come back to. Yeah, timeless, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> on on that subject as well, I've when I've spoken to to colorists before and even maybe sort of the the inkers that the, they they say that you know when they're in in the zone it's almost like a kind of a, a meditative process true, and and you can kind of uh you you know be do you know almost doing do, doing it to a degree and kind of using just a part of your brain and focusing something else at the same time so so oft, often um uh uh yeah the creators i've spoken to when they're when they're maybe doing the coloring or doing the, the inking stage of the process, they might be uh, listening to, to, to uh, maybe an audio book or, or having a, a film on in the, in the background and being able to kind of in, enjoy that uh, with the, with the other part of their brain as right. they're, as they're working. Is that something you do? Yeah, I um, I'm not a real music guy, but I will listen to a lot of, um, a lot of talk radio and a lot of books on tape or a lot of podcasts for comedy, that type of thing. I'm, I'm more of a, a spoken word person as opposed to music. But uh, years ago, I had a TV video set up in, in my office. Um, it just didn't quite last. I, I never, never did as much about putting on a, a film or a TV show in the background. I, I tend to just like to, to have the, the part of my brain that could listen to the, to the audio, listen to the talk. Um, that diverted me enough, but um, looking over to see the screen, I know a lot of artists do it. They're inspired by, um, I'm inspired by lighting and movies constantly. I just don't usually watch it while I'm working. Yeah, too distracting. Yeah, I think I'd be yeah. the same. For me, yeah. Whoa, it's about that time. It's a G.I. Oh. Joe pop quiz, pop quiz. It's a G.I. <laughs> Joe pop quiz, pop quiz. Question two. The G.I. Joes are in a bit of a fix. They need to ramp up their skills. They need to add someone into the mix to help them fight Cobra. They want someone who's kind of a bit metal, a bit droid-like, a bit of a robot. Who do they give the call? Do they call R2-D2, Robocop, T-Bob, Wally, or Robbie the Robot? Well, you got to go with the firepower. you got to go with Robocop. That's, that's just... That's not even a question. <laughs> yeah, Robocop so, well, against some of them BATs. I'd like to see that. Wally is kind of cute, though. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Wally's going to add to the mix, though, apart from kind of, yeah, just cutifying it up. And it's got to be the Peter Weller Robocop. None of that other, none of those other guys. <laughs>
yeah. That was uh, you know. I sure. think I well. You, I think I've kind of I've given you a option to then give me a option to rewatch that movie because I'm always looking for movies to watch. I've got a calendar target of 200 movies to watch this year. Oh, and you I gotta, need you got to do a double feature. You got to do I, Starship Troopers and RoboCop. Oh, I've done that. Starship Troopers already this year, and I, I don't count rewatches <laughs> as well. So I've got. I think I've got. <laughs> okay. I think I've got 15 days to watch 15 movies. I'm on 185, so the the pressure's on. So RoboCop, <laughs> but I think we've uh, you've inspired me, and I've inspired me as well to watch RoboCop tomorrow. So that's going to be my movie help. for the. Yeah. <laughs> I actually Is it haven't part of watched... your collection. Do you do you have to hunt it down, or do you have it in your collection? Uh, that's a good question. I think I've got it on DVD, but I, if I don't, I'll have to rent it for and stream it. But um, I haven't actually. I don't think I've watched either RoboCop two or three. Um, oh, but I know Frank Miller wrote three. Did he? Mm. Uh, was it two? Was it two? two, I think. He, I mean, he might be two. involved in both, potentially, okay. but yeah. I don't, know if they're, I don't wrote, think they're any good, though, are they? Yeah, it's wrote in inverted commas because it was sort of, I think, taken away so far from his original vision. I remember vision, three but... as, as a rough ride. I, yeah, I okay. I'll just do one then. Okay. Yeah, um, I've kind of written them both out of my memory, I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> listen, it has been a wild ride having the Godfather of Colour and Mr. James Brown on the show <laughs> this week. Um, we want to extend our, our gratitude and our thanks for getting you on the show. I hope you had fun. I certainly had a blast. Oh, it, it's been a great time. And uh, keep on keep on reading. We've got uh, a new Joe um, in, in comics, in the IDDO comics. We've got a new G.I. Joe character uh, coming. Uh, her, wow. her code name remains a mystery. Larry... Hama is uh, added again in, in creating uh, a new G.I. Joe character. And I think yeah, that's not enough. Issue, num- issue number 280 for another five-issue arc with okay. uh, a, a great artist named Andrew Griffith. Oh, yeah, from Transformers. Yeah, Robots in Disguise, Andrew Griffith. Oh, right, wow. He's amazing stuff. You can see some of the covers that are, that are coming. And uh, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great because we've, um, we've actually covered every single issue of real american hero on the talking joe podcast so and i think we're just at uh, what which one have we just covered on this week's one mark uh, we're, we're to two, uh, this 258 ven, what is it yeah i think we've just uh, got venom, to 258 yeah what's it, what's it venom called? rising <laughs> yeah venom rising so uh, we'll be catching up to real time very shortly but um <laughs> yeah yeah great we'll look out for that that new arc andrew griffith new character time to get excited uh, for the G.I. Joe Real American Hero. Again, once again, thanks to Jay Brown for popping onto the show, giving up his time when he should be chained to the desk, colouring those <laughs> Joe pages. <laughs> thanks again. Uh, thanks again. Uh, we may hit you up in the future for a return to the show. I'd come back in a New York <laughs> minute. This has been a really great time. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Fantastic. Thanks, thanks so much. <laughs>